1: where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm welcoming Vanitha Rendell-Risner. Vanitha is a writer and speaker who's passionate about helping people find hope in their suffering. Her memoir, Walking Through Fire, a memoir of loss and redemption, as well as devotional The Scars That Have Shaped Me, How God Meets Us in Suffering, both encourage readers to believe that their suffering can be transformative. Some of her greatest joys are being married to Joel and the mother to Katie and Christy. And you can find her embarrassing them in North Carolina or online at www.Vanitha.com. And you can follow her on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Welcome, Vanitha. Thank you. It's great to be here, Cheryl. Thanks for having me. It's it's great to have you. And um, you really deserve to claim the title of your book, Walking Through Fire. You've walked through lots of fires, actually. It could have been plural. So I'm, <laughs> I, I feel that's a, just a really important uh, place to start that our, our challenges in life don't stop, obviously, because life doesn't stop. And we continue to, you're a great example of continuing to learn and grow from that. Oh, thank you, Cheryl.
2: Yeah, I think all along the way, early on, I thought, okay, this is it. This is my suffering. It's over. And yet life continues to go on. And I think we all continue to experience loss, whether it's huge loss, life-altering loss, or
1: minor everyday
2: loss. I think life is a series of losses in a lot of ways.
1: Yes. And the and the other notable thing I would say about your, your title is that having had polio as a baby the very word walking was not a given right um could you start there and just talk about how that impacted um your childhood and then how it impacted kind of your your sense of yourself as you as you matured yes absolutely
2: so i was born in india uh to um parents who Um, I was born in India who I did not get the vaccine for polio though, uh, when I was a baby, because in India, they give you smallpox when you're a baby and they wait till you're a little older to get the polio vaccine. So I didn't have the vaccine, went to the beach, got polio, but the doctors had no idea what it was. So my parents took me to the doctor. I had 105 degree fever and they thought I had typhoid. So they gave me cortisone, which lowered my fever but lowered my cortisone lowers your immune system. And so Mm -hmm. within very, very quickly, they don't even know how long it took, but within days I was paralyzed. And then they took me into another doctor who said, wow, she had polio. We didn't know polio had almost been eradicated by then. So the vaccine had been developed a decade before. So they didn't, No, nobody knew. Nobody had seen it. Even the doctor that saw me, I don't think had ever seen anybody with polio. So it was just one of those things where they were trying to figure it out. They told my parents basically at that point, she's going to be, they used the term vegetable, which is kind of scary that they, and I think that term used to be used a lot, but they said, she's going to be a vegetable the rest of her life. There's nothing Mm. you can do. So uh, if you want any kind of hope for her though, you need to leave India because in India, there's not a lot of medical services for the disabled, mm. especially because there is the sense that it, it has to do with not living well. It's sort of your karma has come back to you. And so as well as Western medicine was a little more advanced. So my dad left India moved to England, which is where I first started having surgeries. And what they would do is do muscle transfers. I also had a dislocated hip. So they did a lot of different things and we'll talk through some of those surgeries. But I moved to England when I was two, had my first surgery. And by the time I was 13, I had had 21 operations. So my life is my early life was defined by the hospital and we moved from England to Canada uh, shortly after my first surgery and that's where I had most of my operations and we were in Montreal and we were we didn't have a lot of money and we were in a free hospital the Shriners Hospital which I'm so grateful that I was able to be there but it was different than hospitals now in that I lived there and didn't see my parents except for weekends So I was on a ward with uh, about a dozen other girls, and we just sort of had this little half-life in some ways. We were just together, saw our parents briefly on weekends, and not everybody even had parents that were anywhere nearby. So there was only a few of us that ever got visitors And so my life was just sort of this mix of seeing my family. I have a young, uh, an older sister, excuse me, um, who I could not see for the whole nine months that I was in the hospital because she wasn't allowed up on the ward. So just this mix of knowing I had a family, but not really being involved in that family. And life for me, honestly, was TV. There was two TVs in our ward. There were two um, mounted on either side. And that's what I thought about life. And then... So I was in the hospital for months at a time every year when I was seven, I was there for nine months straight, but in between I was home. And honestly, that was even harder at the time because being in the hospital, I knew what to expect. Life was somewhat predictable, not great, but I knew, knew what was happening. Whereas when I was home, I was bullied in school. I would say almost every day, somebody would say, what's wrong with you? Or I'd see people imitating the way that I walked. And um, in the book I talked about, I talk about when I was uh, seven and had just learned to walk. So learning to walk was a big thing for me and had all of these operations to do that. And was seven, just learned to walk. And these group of boys uh, saw me walking and they knocked me down and they, they were throwing stones at me actually. And they came up to me, one of them came up to me and pushed me down. And then they scattered. And I remember thinking at that moment, Cheryl, life is not fair. And I do not understand it. Like Mm -hmm. I could not believe that this was happening to me. Didn't really understand why, but at that moment, I remember thinking, I don't understand life and life is me and the rest of the world. And there was this real separation from me, from other people in my mind.
1: You know, that's, that's uh, familiar to me. Uh, I was thinking a lot, I was thinking back a lot when, um, uh, when the ADA got put into law mm-hmm. and um, the um, regulations, there were protests to get the regulations to be enforced. Um, I actually, um, there was a sit-in in San Francisco near me, uh, and it turned into a, um, uh, we all moved into the, the federal building,
0: oh.
1: and I was one of the people that did um, attendant care during that time. And so I heard so many stories, like what you're describing, you know, that, and it was such a fight to, I was contrasting that to the way it is here now in terms of every, every street has a curb cut and, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, not, it's not perfect. Of course, kids still get bullied and all that, but it is different. And I was just remembering back to the way it was when there, when it, when it was, um, kind of more fully dehumanizing to have a disability.
2: Yes. And it's funny because even in Europe, there are lots of places you can't get around because there's no curb cuts. And if you're in a wheelchair, you're just out of luck. And so I realize how grateful I am when we go to hotels or public buildings. I don't have to think way in advance, how am I going to do this? But when my husband and I were in Europe, I was amazed at how many places were totally inaccessible
1: to me. And so, to me, that kind of um, early medical trauma and early bullying trauma, all of that, uh, obviously, you responded by powering through in a way. It <laughs> seems to me, but that runs out eventually because eventually something happens that that kind of undercuts. I'm going to do this thing right. <laughs> that kind yeah. of um, lays lays bare the effects of that kind of childhood. Mm-hmm. For uh, I I felt as if perhaps the time when that came very vividly clear was when you your son died, mm-hmm. which also involved a medical um a medical event, I guess.
2: Yes. And um, I mean they both involved misdiagnoses. Um and ultimately or at least um not, not misdiagnosis, I would say some sort of negligence. Um, so what happened was I ha- was 20 weeks pregnant, uh, went in for a routine ultrasound and found out that we were going to have a boy and that he had a hypoplastic loved heart. And that for people who don't know means that he had half a heart. And it was the half that actually only does 20% of the work. So we needed to have surgery at birth or else he would die. So we did all kinds of research, went to the best doctor really in the world. He had the highest success rate at University of Michigan, flew up there, delivered him. Things were tough for a while, but the surgery went really well. We came home and after a few weeks, Paul started gaining weight. He was doing really well. And so we thought, okay, we're out of the woods. He was 50% on the growth chart. Everything was great. We went in for really a routine checkout to our cardiologist here in the area in North Carolina, but our uh, pediatric cardiologist was not there. So somebody else saw Paul and he was amazed at how good Paul looked. I mean, he really did look really good. And so the doctor just looked at him and said, hey, I don't need to refill all these prescriptions. He doesn't need that anymore. I think we over-medicate kids and, and he doesn't need this. And we had been like getting up all night. Paul was at this point um, six and a half weeks old, almost seven weeks old. And we were up uh, through the night giving him all kinds of syringes of medicine. I think we probably had ten little bottles that we were dispensing different kinds of medicine to him. So the thought that we wouldn't have timers and this was before cell phones. So there was just beepers all over our house was huge. And we thought, oh, this is great. He is doing so well. But it ends up that he really did need that medicine. And the doctor was a little bit impulsive because three days after he took him off the medicine, our son died. And that was this sense of, wow, this world is not safe. Because you want to put your faith in the medical community. not You know they're human and they're people, but you also feel like they are always making the best decisions for you, and realizing that they weren't
1: was good. Yes. And, and that, on top of your own experiences with yes. medicine, I know it maybe took took some work to be trusting of the medical community. Because although they helped you, I know there was also um, some way that they hurt you. Um, Mm -hmm. and and so, um, to, to go through all that and then, and then to have this happen. And then after Paul died, I feel as if you experienced such a common failure in terms of, uh, community support. And I wonder if you could share a bit from, from your book about after he died and how the people around you kind of failed you at that moment. Oh, yes.
2: Um, Yeah. I'd love to, to read some of that from the book. Okay. So one week after Paul died, I loaded Katie into our minivan and drove her back to preschool. I wanted her to return to something familiar. Her teacher had already told the other parents about Paul's death to spare me from having to explain it. When we arrived, I unbuckled Katie from her car seat and took her hand as we walked through the front door. A mom from Katie's class was leaving just as we entered, but she looked at the floor and didn't speak as she walked past. That stung, but I kept walking, hoping I'd see a friendly face. The teacher usually greeted the arriving families at the classroom door. Today, however, she was inside the classroom, pinning something to the bulletin board. When she saw us, she waved and called, Katie, come on in. Then she immediately turned back to her project. Katie ran into the classroom and began to play with her friends while I lingered in the doorway. Was the teacher really not going to ask me anything or even acknowledge Paul's death? But I couldn't try to attract sympathy. What was I supposed to do? Limp to her side and wait for her to offer condolences? I watched the teacher's work become busy work as she fidgeted with rehanging an art project for the third time. Finally, I turned and left just as another mother approached the classroom with her little boy. Our eyes met briefly, and then she dropped her gaze and walked past without a word. Outside, I felt a a cool October breeze tickle my face as I walked to the minivan. The moment I climbed in and closed the door, I slumped forward and cried. Did anyone care? No, it wasn't that. I had my own nut work of people who really cared for me, like Shalini and Jennifer and Ann. I didn't need Katie's preschool staff to care for me. I needed them to acknowledge me, one word even, or one kind touch on the shoulder that communicated, we see you, we're sorry, and we know that your life has been forever changed. But Katie's preschool wasn't an aberration. A neighbor pretended not to see me as I walked toward her in the canned soup aisle of the grocery store. She turned her back and walked away quickly. We hadn't actually made eye contact, so it was possible she truly hadn't seen me. Except that the same scene repeated itself nearly every time I ran errands around town. People probably hoped I hadn't seen them, but I always did, and it always hurt. Perhaps worse, however, were those who did acknowledge me, but without acknowledging what had actually happened. In my better moments, I could assign good motives to those who ignored me. She probably doesn't know what to say, and she doesn't want to make things worse. Some people truly seemed unaware that they were making things worse. Two weeks after Paul died, I attended a pampered chef party, hoping to take my mind off my grief for a few hours. It worked, but imperfectly. Part of me felt guilty that I was trying to do something fun instead of mourning Paul. As I considered buying a cute sandwich cutter, a woman beside me started, tried to start a conversation. How many children do you have? Two, I said without thinking, which led to a lengthy and uncomfortable talk about Paul. When the woman politely moved on to a different area of the party, I found the guest bathroom and took stock of myself. There was no way I could repeat that conversation, which had brought up emotions I wasn't ready to deal with. I was supposed to be forgetting about my emotions at the party, not delving into them with strangers. Except how could I forget Paul or my grief? Back at the party, another woman asked how many I had, how many kids I had, one I said, and then I immediately excused myself and left the party. I realized I would have to respond to that question for the rest of my life. And there was no right answer. I couldn't deny Paul's existence, yet I couldn't keep explaining his death at every social gathering. Before Paul was born, I'd been working part-time as a marketing consultant and I'd been partway through a major project Heading back to the office for the first time since Paul's death, I stepped off the elevator and almost bumped into a co-worker waiting to go down. He paused, acknowledging me and looking me in the eye. Then he said, hey, it's good to see you. I'm glad you're here, back at work. I'm glad you're over this. I looked at the carpet and counted the seconds until I heard the elevator door shut behind me. Over this? What did that even mean? I walked into my office and gathered some papers, organizing them into folders. After a few minutes, my manager, Jeff, stuck his head in the door. It's good to have you back. I'm sorry for your loss. We were all so upset when we heard. There, is that so hard? I was thankful he cared. His simple words acknowledged what had happened. I was about to thank him when he added, every time my wife and I have to put a dog down, it's been really hard. When we'd walk back into the house, it felt empty, but after a few weeks, it always got better. So I know it'll get better for you. I forced myself to nod and say, thanks, Jeff, as I looked away and went back to sorting papers. I knew no one was trying to hurt me, but knowing that didn't lessen the pain. Back home in the stillness of our house, I found myself reliving those moments in my head more often than I wanted to more often than was probably healthy.
1: So, so familiar. We're going to cut to a break and then come back and and talk about this after the break, because I can't tell you how many times I've discussed that same kind of experience, Um, you know, with many, many other people. So mm-hmm. we'll come back to that in a minute. And listeners, you can find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Vanitha, you can go to vanitha.com, V-A-N-E-E-T-H-A.com. Be back soon. <laughs>
2: Be sure to like the Voice America Health and Wellness channel on Facebook. You'll find great health tips from the experts. Find out more about your favorite shows and talk back to our team. Search Voice America Health or click the like button under the player today.
1: This is Good Grief host Cheryl Jones. Whether you're in grief, crisis, deep loss, or transition, working with the right therapist can move you forward like nothing else. That's why I'm happy to be sponsoring BetterHelp. BetterHelp. Their user-friendly platform connects you with a therapist uniquely suited to support you. If you want to know more, follow the link on my host page or go to betterhelp.com slash goodgrief. That's betterhelp.com slash goodgrief and receive a 10% discount for the first month. Gerald Jones, and I've been talking with Vanitha Rendell-Risner about her book, Walking Through Fire, and right before the break, Vanita, you shared that part of the, the book that is just so familiar to me, uh, where people don't know what to say, probably, perhaps the worst is if they don't say anything, <laughs> like at <laughs> yeah. the preschool, um, but sometimes the things that are said are also incredibly painful. And I wonder if you have who who got it right? Who said the right things? You know, your your boss didn't do anything fancy; just referred to it, right? right. Um, but I wonder if there are people who just um, warmed you and and helped you to feel supported at that time. Yeah, I had some. One, my sister; she was
2: always there for me. And she would ask, which we talked about at the break, actually, the question, how are you doing today? And that makes you really feel heard because I think mm, yes. the question, how are you doing, is one of the hardest oh, things geez. to answer because I don't know how I'm doing. I don't know on a global <laughs> sense. You know, right. So you mean right
1: we, this minute or tomorrow? Yes, exactly.
2: <laughs> so probably even today is hard. It's like, how are you doing this second? Because we one minute i'm crying one minute i'm you know not and so i really appreciated it when people would take the time and not walk past when they were asking like look at me and say how are you doing today that felt like they really wanted to know and they really cared mm. and so i think there were a lot of people that did it well and that made me feel heard but I feel like a lot of other people just didn't know what to do. And I think people think the default is don't do anything, just walk away. But they don't know when you're hurting. Any kind of acknowledgement
1: feels like care. Even if it's, I'm so sorry, I don't have time to talk, but but it's good to see you. You know, right. even that. Right. <laughs> um, but it's interesting to me because, of course, your sister really stands out in the book as someone who came through for you in all your various challenges. Uh, And it's, and it occurs to me that she had early training in the sense that it must have affected your whole family, that you had polio as a kid and that you had to learn to walk and that you were separated from the, you know, I could imagine that, that your sister has an extra dose of empathy as a result. She does. She really is very intuitive and insightful because
2: she had to, she was at the same school. So she watched me sort of deal with that. She was very protective, defensive of me. And I think she saw some of the things that I dealt with growing up. And so she really knows how to be there for her friends, I think, and knows how to listen without offering a ton of advice because, you know, there's times when we want advice, but you know, unasked for advice is criticism. And I think a lot of people want to give us advice when we're grieving, when we're not asking for it. And she usually didn't do that. She just would say, what do you need from me today? Which was mm-hmm. really helpful when I was venting about something, because sometimes I needed another perspective. And I'd say, I need you to help me see this differently. But other times it's like, I need you to just listen.
1: That's that's really uh I, I love that sentence you just said, uh, unasked for advice is criticism. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that really captures it. I've I've said the same thing with different different words, but I feel that one just really nails it. It's true. It reads that way, doesn't it? Yeah. And, um, I spend a ton of time when I'm working with couples um, asking them to determine which kind of conversation they're having before they start does this person just want to be heard or do they want to figure something out? You know, because yeah. if mm. you get that wrong, it's uh, it's a complete disconnect, isn't it? Yes, yes. Yeah. So um. one thing that really stands out in your book is how many extreme challenges you've had. And I connect them in a way. For instance, um, couples after... Um, the death of a child are are quite challenged, right? Mm. And your marriage was very challenged and ultimately d- didn't last. And I don't know that you connect those two dots but but I do in a way, right? Mm. <laughs> how, um, you got it through it once but not twice in a sense. Um, and And I also was struck by how the how that experience, sort of bored down into the kind of self judgments that you developed from your childhood. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could share, um, there's a part of your book about what you carried um, from that, that then was waiting to our, you know, our critical voices are just waiting to clobber us. Oh, yes, yeah, I would, <laughs> as yeah. Soon as, as soon as it seems like they have an excuse yeah I think um and I will read this, but I think what
2: happens is we have traumatic experiences that sometimes we don't work through and they become part of what we think of ourselves, and then something else happens, and it confirms everything that we maybe hadn't even voiced and that 's what happened to me like I had not talked about my childhood with many people, but when my um my ex husband left it it felt like it was it was confirming my worst fears about myself
1: well and you know there's a certain amount of payoff to looking like the real resilient one who's who's does fine and you know in the midst of challenges i i got the sense that was a pretty strong identity as well yes yes that makes it hard to actually deal with the trauma and let that pain in yes yeah i i always wanted to be the
2: one to to help and to be seen as sort of the strong tower and that, that was, that comes with a price, you know? So, yeah, yeah. well, I'm thinking there's, I have two sort of related things, but I will be reading the one just about sort of how my, um, how I pushed down a lot of the things. So here I start with certain things I was good at and certain things I wasn't painting was in the first category and navigating in the second cooking in the first, homeschooling in the second, making people laugh in the first, and making unpopular decisions with the girls in the second. And this is when I was um, a single parent. There were some things, however, I truly excelled at, like at a world-class level. One of those was taking painful words and making them disappear. As soon as I heard them, I'd push them away and bury them as deeply inside myself as I could. So that's exactly what I did with Dave's words. As I dug a pit for them, a few other long-buried phrases whispered to me. Cripple. When I was in school rather than the hospital, I was self-conscious about everything. People made fun of both my limp and my mother, who wore Indian clothes, so I started asking Shalini to walk home with me instead of her. One day I decided to surprise my mother by walking home by myself. After all the kids had left the classroom, I went out from a side door so no one would accidentally knock me down. I was paying so much attention to walking straight that I didn't notice the boys until one of them threw a small rock at me. When I looked over at them, they began pelting me with small stones. One of them yelled cripple to a loud round of laughter. Another boy walked towards me, swaying from side to side to imitate my limp. I was terrified. When he reached me, he pushed my shoulders and I fell to the ground. Then they ran away, leaving me crying in the gravel. There was no one around to help me up, so I crawled to a nearby rock and pushed myself to my feet. Everything hurt as I walked home. I didn't tell my mother because I knew it would upset her. Instead, I pushed the experience down and tried not to think about it. They feel sorry for you. In high school, my Friend Maggie secretly submitted my name for the Winter Festival Queen ballot at the Sadie Hawkins Christmas dance. On the day of the election, I was working after school on the layout for the newspaper when a guy on the paper staff popped his head in the newsroom. Hey, I want you to know that I voted for you today because I think you are pretty and nice, he said casually. I mean, I know a lot of people are voting for you because they feel sorry for you, but that's not why I did. I pushed his words away and focused on the layout since I didn't think there was any chance I could win anyway. I was Indian and handicapped. Who would vote for me? The night of the dance, the DJ stopped the music to announce the winner. I walked to the front, feeling wildly out of place next to the other other nominees with their perfect bodies, perfect makeup, and perfect hair. I scanned the faces in the crowd, wondering how many people felt sorry for me. When the DJ announced I was the new winter festival queen, Maggie clapped wildly, but I didn't know how I felt. What was an award if it was given out of pity? I can't date you because of your disability. In Boston, a guy named Patrick was a little too eager in his flirting for my taste. One day he asked me out to dinner saying he wanted to talk about something. All week I dreaded that dinner because I knew he wanted to start dating. At the cute neighborhood diner, Patrick sat opposite me. He took a deep breath and said, there's actually something specific I want to talk to you about. I was mentally rehearsing how I'd let him down politely when he continued, I know we're both kind of interested in each other and we flirt from time to time, but I want you to know before this goes any further that I can't date you because of your disability. A mixture of rage and shame felled me. Though I'd always walked with a pronounced limp, my disability didn't stand out otherwise. I never mentioned how tired I was or let people see how weak my shoulders were. I kept up with my friends in everything but sports. So Patrick was saying that he was too embarrassed to be seen beside me as my boyfriend. His words stung. Why am I pulling up these hurtful comments from decades before? Whatever the reason, I shoved Dave's words down with the others, deeper and deeper, until they were gone. I was afraid to express my anger and hurt, unsure where, they would, where that would lead. I felt obligated to be a good example for the girls. They needed me to be strong as we struggled to find
1: our new identity as a family of three. That is one of the best descriptions of how we don't really get rid of things when we bury them, isn't mm. it? <laughs> They're waiting to pounce as soon as something else presses the button. Yes. Kind of like (laughs) that whack-a-mole, you know, like we think it goes down then it's going to come out. You know, you probably felt so successful that you could just Ward off these terrible things that happened and that people said, and these experiences of of humiliation, but it actually doesn't heal that way, does it? Right, it doesn't. And I think I thought if we
2: don't think about it, it'll go away. And I realized actually dealing with it is so much more healing. So having it come up was actually better, and that they were those things were impacting my life in ways that I hadn't seen until my husband left and and then realizing like, wow, this is impacting how I view myself all the time. So it came to the surface, which really surprised me when I started replaying all the things that I thought I'd forgotten.
1: I don't want to um, ignore the fact that you had a savings grace in your life. You know, um, having a, a very personal relationship with whatever our God is, (laughs) whatever is bigger than us, Um, you still had somewhere to refer back to. But um, I was so aware in that that um, from my view, this power greater than ourselves is is not actually there to fix things for us. Like that's kind of our work, mm. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know. But that uh, you mentioned the Serenity Prayer in your book, which I I keep referring back to as as my life goes on, you know differentiating between what we're supposed to take care of and what we're supposed to learn to accept Mm -hmm. uh, I feel you dug deeper and deeper in into what you needed to uh, grapple with and uh, with support with the support of feeling accompanied but not expecting any power other than you to do it for you yeah I, and I think I love what you
2: said about the serenity prayer because I think that became this huge thing for me is really understanding what can I change and what do I need to let go and I think especially with parenting I think I felt that I needed to change everything that everything was my job mm-hmm. and my kids felt like projects and products And I think it was very helpful for them as I started to let go and realize I can't change a lot of this. I need to just let it go.
1: Yes, after decades of working with parents, I can say definitively that the way you parent does not determine who your kids become. (laughs) Yes, (laughs) you know it. You may influence it. You can probably, you know, you can mess it up and all that, but they're also themselves, aren't they? <laughs> yes, they're their own people. And I think realizing that was so freeing
2: for me rather than kind of micromanaging them to be these perfect little products that they
1: are not intended to be. To, right. to maybe deal with um, feeling inadequate or uh, not beautiful or, you know, I think, I think that can get um laid on our kids they they need to be perfect for us <laughs> a little right. bit right yes one of the lines from one of the songs that was written
2: um for the book says you were my billboard you had to make me look good too
1: and yes that's what they did <laughs> uh we only have a, a you know short time before the break but i did want to talk about those songs because to have some people write a um It's five songs, isn't it? That directly relate to what I consider to be the deep principles of the book Um, must have been very awesome and humbling. (laughs) It was incredible. It really was. (laughs) Yeah. And, And I know that you're very focused on giving the gift of what you've learned. And yeah. so it's nice how that becomes exponential, isn't it? Mm-hmm. That you yes. you give it you gave it the book and then someone else gave it in in song and so it has another way to communicate itself. Yes? Yes. Yes. Let's talk about that a little more when we come back. Listeners, you can go find me at weatherandgrief.com, my website, or the Good Grief host page. And to find Vanitha, you can go to www.vanetha.com. Back soon.
0: Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit facebook.com forward slash voice america. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now back to good grief.
1: Welcome back. I'm Cheryl Jones and I've been talking with Vanita Risner about her book, Walking Through Fire. And I want to linger a little longer on the process of unearthing your self-judgment in terms of particularly your body um when your husband, we didn't mention that he he engaged in a fa- in an affair and ultimately left to be with that person, which of course, if you have any insecurity at all <laughs> about your your physical self um, you know've I've been through that with people so often. It's gonna come up, isn't it? Yes, and it's just such a natural recipe. Um, as if, as if somehow it's it has anything to do with you that that your spouse handled things that way. Um, but it it seemed to me that that just made all those voices from all your lifetime uh, yell so loud. It did. It really did. I mean, some of it was probably
2: completely unrelated to me. But when somebody has an affair, it just feels so intensely personal, and it feels like for me, you are not enough, and so I had to look for someone who was enough. And a lot of my ex-husband stuff was his own stuff, and and we have talked about that since. But even in the moment, it was more like, "It's you. You were not enough." And you know, she's more attracted to me. I never loved you. You know, and those are the things that most people say in affairs. So I don't think it's unique to my ex-husband, but those words just hurt so much for anybody, other people I've talked to, but when you already have this sense that you're not enough coming into it and that, you know, being bullied, having dealt
1: with all of those things, it just all sort of comes back to. Absolutely. Yeah. Horrible yeah I, I, When I work with couples that are, that are separating, I may, I, I, they don't always agree to do this, but what I, strongly encourage is take a couple of months and don't interact mm. because otherwise there's so much damage on the way out the door people people who are leaving want to justify that behavior um, people that are being left or flattened you know it's yeah. it's just there's no no point in trying to talk at that point but um of That's course people so do wise. Yeah, that's so wise because I think there was just
2: a lot of words exchanged and I, I know I'm sure on both of our parts that we want to pull back, but I just remember, you know, never loved you, love her. You know, those words just sting and you yes. you can't get them out of your head after a while and you start connecting them to your yourself. Like, what did I do for this?
1: Yeah, and uh, I was very struck you know, because I guess you would probably agree. I, you may have even used these words that earlier in your life you were, you were a people pleaser, and um, or you know like to do what would make other people happy, all that kind of thing. Yeah. And it's interesting that you were able to forgive, but not from that place of of kind of trying to. Uh, falsely forgive or skip over, Mm -hmm. it seemed like you really went through that and then found a way to forgive.
2: Yeah. I think that's so important in forgiveness because I think we can say the words, I forgive you, but we know that if it keeps coming up and there's tons of bitterness with it, then it's not really, you haven't really been able to forgive, or at least in my own life, I've seen that. If I say I'm forgiving, but then I keep replaying what's happened, I haven't really forgiven. And for Mm -hmm. me, part of the process was actually keeping a notebook and writing down everything that I had to forgive and everything that was taken from me and everything that I believed about myself, that this felt that it uh, reinforced it, that I had to move against. So I just wrote every single thing that I had to forgive, that I lost, that was taken whether they were intended consequences or unintended consequences and hard things that were said. All the things that I was tending to carry in my head, I wanted to write them down so that I could know, honestly, what am, what am I forgiving?
1: And also, I, I don't know if you agree with this or not, but I don't think it makes a lot of sense to forgive acts. Mm-hmm. To me, it makes a lot more sense to forgive humans. Mm. Who act badly? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you can never take away that that was a harmful act, but there is a way to come to to release the person um, from continued resentment and anger for what they did. Yes, I, I think that's true,
2: and I think a lot of it was for me just realizing, yeah, that he's a person and made mistakes, and I make mistakes, and. Uh, it's interesting because we're we're still friends, and I'm really thankful for that because I think people aren't black and white. There's a lot of gray in people, and and sometimes I think when people have hurt me, I I want to make them all, you know, one sided and unidimensional, sort of a cartoon character of they're all bad. And realizing we're a lot of gray. I look at my own life; I'm a lot of
1: gray. So, <laughs> as do we all. <laughs> yeah. Let's share one more one more part of the book that does have something to do with this "quote unquote" people pleasing um, uh, character that you developed. The the other side of that same quality being a true generosity.
2: Yes. Okay. Yeah, I'd love to. Well, everyone had an opinion on what I should do, and they were eager to share it with me. One friend said I needed to focus on healthy eating by making nutritious meals from scratch. Another friend reminded me that I was overusing my arms and should pick up fast food more often. Someone said I should make the girls go to the go to youth group in Sunday school because they needed support. But someone else insisted I shouldn't force conversations about faith because it would turn them away from God. A woman at church was adamant that I needed to follow through on discipline with immediate consequences, but my mother called to let me know I was being too hard on my children. Dave had a rental place in town and was flying down every weekend to see the girls. My friends thought I shouldn't be so nice to him when he picked them up, but Dave thought I was too critical of him. One friend said I shouldn't get divorced, or at least I shouldn't be the one to file. She believed I had made a covenant I was obligated to keep. But other friends thought I should have filed for divorce already because David already blo- bro- David broken the covenant. They said I needed to move on. A teacher said I should keep Christy. Sh- sh- excuse me, I should teach Christy better study and organization habits so she wouldn't keep turning assignments in late. But Christy's counselor told me to let her miss her deadlines and face the consequences. Start standing up for yourself more, Vanita. Putting others first in humility is the best witness, Vanita. Katie said I micromanaged her life. Christy said I expected too much from her. The polio clinic, not in so many words, said that I was crazy for not using a wheelchair full-time, but the girls were embarrassed when I showed up to their school events in a wheelchair. It would have been nice to be able to tune out all the voices and decide things for myself, but that wasn't in my DNA. I learned early on that people-pleasing was the safest option. Nurse Lane was the was one of the first to teach me that back when I was seven years old and in a body cast from the chest down. I'd been living on a ward for almost nine months straight on what was then called the Shriners Hospital for Crippled Children in Montreal. Because my parents visited only on weekends, the nurses handled my day-to-day needs. Most of them were nice, but Nurse Lane terrified me. She was even mean to the other nurses. One morning, I woke up feeling awful. I didn't want breakfast and didn't even want to be propped up. Nurse Lane brought my plate anyway. Eggs dripping with water, cold burnt toast and brown bananas and set it by my bed. When she came back to pick up the trays, she asked, aren't you going to finish your breakfast? I'm done. It looks yucky. You've hardly touched your food, she said, sliding the plate closer to me. Take a few bites. I don't want it, I said, reaching out and pushing the plate farther away. I don't feel good. She paused, then picked up the plate and slammed it back down. You need to take a few bites now before we clean up breakfast. If you don't, you won't get lunch. The ward was totally quiet. Everyone was staring at us, and I could feel my ears burning. I didn't mean to upset her, but now I was upset, and she couldn't force me to eat. I don't want lunch anyway, I said. Nurse Lane's face turned red. She grabbed my breakfast and left the room. Baths started after breakfast. Every day the nurses would bring a large silver bowl filled with steaming hot water and hand me a warm sudsy washcloth to scrub my face. Then they would wash my arms and my toes. My cast was sweaty and itchy and I loved the feel of the warm water on my skin. Then the nurses would roll me over on my side to wash my back and change my sheets. It was always my favorite part of the day. That morning, though, everyone else on the ward was given a bath except me. When I noticed the nurses starting to clean up for lunch, I whispered to the nurse standing near me. Can I have my bath now? I've waited all morning. Nurse Lane walked over at that moment and said, it's too late. You said you didn't feel well, so I thought you wouldn't want your bath. We're getting ready for lunch right now, so there's no time. I tried hard not to cry. When lunch trays came out, I pretended I was asleep. No one checked on me all afternoon, and I didn't ask to be propped up to see the TV in the corner. I just lay there, making up stories in my mind. That evening, the nurses brought the dinner trays, and I was served last. Watery vegetable beef soup with stale crackers. When it was time for bed, Nurse Lane helped me get ready in stylus. She pushed a bedpan under my bottom and wiped me. Maybe you'll feel better tomorrow, she said, and you can get a bath after you eat your breakfast, of course. I nodded. I realized I would never beat her. What I wanted didn't matter. What I felt didn't matter. All I needed to do, all I could do really was eat my food, listen to the nurses and pretend to be happy. If I did that, everyone would treat me better. Nurse Lane was a very effective teacher.
1: And an incredibly cruel adult. Yeah. What cruelty that is, isn't it? Uh, yeah. Uh,
2: it, it's, it's Every time I think about it, I, I realize that I lived through that and didn't realize how hard that was because you just sort of live through it.
1: And I, I think the logical thing for a seven year old is, is to assume it's something wrong with yourself. Right. Right. That, that the person to correct is yourself. Uh, how can you correct a big old powerful adult? <laughs> yeah.
2: Know? Yeah. So yeah. that's where I learned to be a pleaser was more like the only person I can change is myself. I can't influence. I can't do anything. So I'm the one that needs to give in every situation.
1: It, it comes back to this, um, you know, the, Learning to listen to your own inner voice, mm. um, in in concert with whatever you believe in, you know, feeling supported by whatever you believe in, to actually listen to yourself. Mm-hmm. Don't you think? Yeah, yeah, and I think for me, I. I feel like it was only going through all that
2: trauma. And and we didn't really mention I have post-polio, so I use a wheelchair now. I used to walk more. I used to walk and now I use a wheelchair most of the time. But it was really in some ways through the suffering and coming to terms with what has been hard and what I've believed about myself and the lies that I really had believed and coming to terms with all of those things has given me a lot more freedom than I ever would have thought that actually going through more suffering helps me reevaluate the lies that I believed when I was young.
1: The other thing you're a great example of, Anita, is that in some way, what we're willing to tolerate in relationships um, has something to do with how we feel about ourselves. And mm-hmm. of course, you are now in a in a very beautiful marriage where you are valued. Yes. And I'm sure that that came partly out of val- valuing yourself. But I also like, and we'll have to end here for today, but I also like... That you you didn't just wrap it up in a tidy bow. You said there will continue to be challenges. There will continue to be difficult things, and it's my job to keep growing and transforming as a result of what happens in my life. I really appreciated that message, even though you did have in the relationship department uh, quite a happy uh, ending. Right? Yes,
2: <laughs> yes. I, I definitely. Uh, I feel like Joel, my my husband. Tied life up in a bow, but as we all know, bows unravel. All things. Bows unravel.
1: <laughs> but maybe not that that bow, maybe just right. different bows. Thank right. you for being with me today, Vanita. I've really enjoyed our conversation. Well, oh, thank you. Thank you for having me, Cheryl. Absolutely. And and V-A-N-E-E-T-H-A.com. <laughs> com, Next week I'll have Abby Greenberg and Maggie Saracek better known as Abs and Mags, to talk about the book they've written, The Anxiety Sisters Survival Guide. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation.